All right, well, good morning, Roots. How are you all doing? Good morning. Good. We uh, missed you guys last Sunday. We were in Chicagoland. Uh, my wife, Alice, and I were uh, asked to help lead and to speak at this conference, the summit of Hmong American Christian uh, men and women, leaders and pastors from all over the country all gathered, uh, about 100 of us. Um, so that was really uh, life-giving. It was, it was a, a rich time of discussion. I just want to share real briefly kind of the heart behind that and what came out of that. Um, I mean, we talked about uh, kind of Hmong American theology and its context. We talked about Hmong American uh, church planting, what that looks like. Um, and uh, there was just a lot of excitement that came out of that. However, one thing really took us by surprise. Um, it was that a lot of us being second-gen immigrants, we realized there was a lot of um, deep wounds and traumas that we all, that, that kind of rose to the surface during our gathering. And, that, and we had to lament those together, and we had to uh, grieve those things together um, and pray healing over our generation. Um, it was something that none of the leaders of this gathering anticipated, um, and it all took us all by surprise. In a lot of ways, um, it reminds me of a lot of the churches uh, in Paul's time, where a lot of them had just come to faith in Jesus, and they were asking questions of identity, identity in Jesus. Who were we before we came to follow this Jewish Messiah? What can we hold on to? What do we need to let go? And where are we all going as a single family of God, both Jew and Gentile? So um, that, that brings us, actually, it's really relevant to our uh, sermon series this morning where we've been in a series called uh, Subversive Peace, it's on the screen there, reading Romans backwards. And as a way of preface this morning, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Uh, those two chapters are so dense with content that uh, I think we only have this Sunday to committed to chapters 3 and 4, so I get the joy of unpacking these very dense chapters. Um, and, and, you know, Romans chapter 3 and 4 is really sort of the, the kind of the battleground for a lot of Western Protestant theology. Uh, really the whole book of Romans as a whole. But it's in these chapters, uh, and in similar chapters in Galatians, that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther formulated his doctrine of justification by faith, or, or, or justification by faith alone, that uh, became one of the driving forces behind the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm not obviously not a Lutheran or a Reformation scholar, uh, but to, just to kind of set the kind of historical context for that, Luther, in his context, he saw that the Catholic Church was selling indulgences uh, as a way of remission for sin. And uh, the, the Catholic Church at that time was uh, commercializing this act of worship. And so um, Luther saw that uh, law or Torah was uh, somehow opposed to gospel. That's how he painted it out, that they were, law and gospel were kind of at odds with each other. Um, and so Luther's battle cry became, uh, you know, justification by faith alone, not by following the law or not by following the Torah. That's how he framed it. But the particular way that the Roman Catholic Church was abusing these indulgences was actually not the same kind of works of the law that the first century uh, Jews were practicing in the context of Paul's letter. So we're going to just continue unpacking more of this. Um, those practices were uh, circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath. 
So because these chapters are so dense, as a way to kind of give us the, the broad scope of chapters three and four of Romans, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, a, a text, and I'm going to unpack it a little bit, and I'm going to read another text and unpack like that, and so on and so on. That way we can kind of get the big picture, but also have some time to kind of go in depth a little bit with a couple of key passages as well. Before we dive in, as a quick review, we've been saying throughout this sermon series that uh, in the book of Romans, when Paul refers to the weak, he's referring mostly to the Jewish Christians who want to follow uh, the, the Torah or the Jewish law, uh, customs of circumcision and food laws and Sabbath. And many of the weak are judging the strong uh, because the strong are mostly Gentile Christians who uh, they didn't want to follow these same practices. They didn't see themselves as held under that law. So for this reason, the strong, who kind of felt more freed in their practice of faith, despised the weak, and the weak were judging the strong. So there was kind of this, these factions in the Roman house churches, even though they both believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So we're going to dive in. Uh, our first passage is Romans 3, 19 through 24 then. So if you have a phone or Bible, if you want to follow along on the screens, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, and I'm reading from the NIV here. So Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. One of the, one of the key phrases that we're going to unpack in this text we just read is works of the law. In verse 20, works of the law. What is Paul referring to when he says works of the law and other similar phrases in these passages? If you could imagine three concentric circles, and in the innermost circle are the three Jewish customs that gave them their identity. Circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath. Place those in the inner circle. Right? That's one way of understanding works of the law. The second layer um, is the broader Mosaic law, or the five books of Moses, the five, first five books of the Old Testament, um, or just Torah in general as a whole. That's the second way of understanding what Paul is referring to as works of the law. And then in the outer third circle, it would be the broadest definition of um, works of the law, which would include uh, someone Jewish or Gentile, non-Jewish, just doing generic good works unrelated to Jewish customs to merit God's salvation. So in this broadest definition then, um, if one were to subscribe to this definition, works of the law would include Gentiles outside of Jewish law who, just in a generic sense, would attempt to earn God's favor and salvation through, through good works. So many scholars, uh, including 
uh, Luther, the great reformer, have interpreted works of the law to then include this, this broader, more generic definition of, of works. Right? Uh, one one uh, New Testament scholar summarizes kind of, the, kind of the reformer's definition of works of the law. He writes, interpreters of Paul have traditionally thought that works of the law refers to anything done in obedience to the law, particularly those good works that one might put forth as a reason why God should accept a person. These interpreters then viewed works of the law as a subset of a larger category of just good works, and they understand this verse and others like it to be refuting the idea that a person could gain a right standing with God by anything that that person did. So all of us here, if, if, if you're of a Protestant background like me and probably all of us, um, you know, the reformers of our tradition saw works of the law as a kind of all-encompassing, whether Jewish or Gentile. Um, it was like a works-based religion to earn favor with God, to earn salvation. Now, of course, anyone outside of Jewish tradition uh, could adopt this kind of faulty perception of works of the law, where we're trying to merit God's salvation through, through these works unrelated to Judaism. Of course, that's possible. But just because any Gentile person could do this does not necessarily mean that here Paul is uh, limiting that definition uh, to that. Not limiting. That doesn't mean that Paul is expanding that uh, to a generic works of the law unrelated to Jewish customs. But actually, when we read Paul's works of the law within the context of first century Judaism of the weak and the strong, the Jew and the Gentiles, in, in my reading and in several other uh, scholars' readings, um, often all lumped together as a, a new, per, new perspective on Paul, uh, even though there's variation amongst what that, what that really means. Uh, but Paul's works of the law then actually does focus a little bit more narrow, uh, specifically to the inner layers of those three concentric circles, where uh, the Mosaic law at the broadest, but also more specifically, uh, then I believe that Paul is focusing on circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath as the better interpretation of works of the law in the book of Romans here. Here's our evidence. Romans chapter 3 starts with, with this. Uh, he's speaking to the Jews here uh, in the house churches. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So this is Paul's explicit reference back to Jewish heritage and the Jewish practice of circumcision. He's highlight, he's framing this whole conversation uh, by uh, putting on display Jewish heritage of circumcision and uh, the words of God, the oracles of God that come out of Jewish Torah or law. So Paul is framing this conversation by uh, explicitly referencing these things. And this further aligns with what we've seen throughout this series, where Paul addresses in chapters 14 and 15, uh, do you guys remember the garbage eaters and the, uh, the lettuce eaters? I, I know I'm kind of... Garbage bellies. Garbage bellies and the lettuce eaters or something like that, uh, where the, the common threat throughout this whole letter is um, are things like dietary laws, are things like circumcision. Uh, and so... That's where I, I, I lean towards, you know, when Paul says works of law, it's really honing in on these Jewish practices that give them their identity, not just generic, you know, works uh, in general. But just to be clear, this doesn't make 
first century Judaism, uh, in, in a general sense, um, a, a works-based religion. It, it doesn't make it that way. It's not the same as if you or I, you know, post-Jesus, were to, to continue to view God like we had to continue to uh, earn God's, you know, favor, or earn God's grace. Instead, Jews were brought into the covenant by God's grace to start with. Right? Remember, God delivers Israel from Egypt first, and then God gives them the Ten Commandments. That's right. So grace first, and then Torah. God covenants with them by God's mercy, and then gives Israel Torah instruction to show the nations that they are a people who belong to God. And um, N.T. Wright frames kind of this whole complex really well. This whole discussion, he frames it really well when he writes, uh, for too long we have read scripture with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. Right? It's time that we get back to reading with first century eyes, as if we were there in Paul's churches, but with 21st century questions, so that it's applicable to our setting today. When we read the letter of Romans in its historical first century context, and its entire uh, literary context of the whole letter, what emerges then is that we see works of the law referring to specific Jewish practices that marginalize Gentile Christians, uh, that make them feel like they're outsiders because they don't want to uh, get circumcised and uh, eat kosher and follow uh, Sabbath and special, special days. All right, so we'll move on here to uh, the next passage, Romans 3, 28. Uh, verses, uh, verses 28 through 30. I think this one will be on the screens here. So Romans 3, 28 through 30. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Amen. Through that same faith. So the weak, primarily Jewish Christians, and the strong, primarily Gentile Christians, are justified through the same faith and therefore are united under the same Lord. Where Paul's justification by faith was intended to bring unity amongst these very different people groups. An interesting observation I made is that um, Luther's justification by faith actually brought separation from the, the you know, Roman Catholic Church. And so I'm not saying I agree with what the Catholic Church was doing by selling indulgences uh, in, that, in those uh, centuries, but I'm not saying I disagree with the Protestant Reformation either. This is just a, an observation that what Paul intended uh, for justification by faith to, to bring together Jews and Gentiles, um, we actually did the opposite of that, which is, which is obviously very sad. Um, so we'll move forward to Romans 4, uh, chapters 1 through 5 here. Romans 4, chapters 1 through 5. Uh, again, these chapters are very dense. There's so much to unpack. Um, so we're going to just keep moving along here. This is Paul talking about Abraham. He writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? 
If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? And when Paul in the New Testament says, what what does Scripture say? He's obviously referring to the Old Testament. (laughs) Scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You just owe someone something if they work. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Hang, hang tight with me here. We're going to uh, lump these two next uh, passages together because they're really related. <coughs> uh, so Romans 4, 9 through 13. This is also on the slides. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before? It was not after, but before. I love Paul's rhetorical questions here, right? He's asking them left and right. He's answering all of his own rhetorical questions. He received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. He is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That is not a simple sentence right there. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. We jump to verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Wow, father of us all. Paul's talking to a group of uh, Jewish and Gentile Greek followers of Jesus, and he says that Abraham is the father of them all. That is a really bold statement for that audience. When I was at the Hmong American Christian Conference this past weekend, I was reminded of the story of the first Hmong Christian convert. Uh, the, the opening night, the, gr- the great-grandson of the first convert was there, and he gave kind of like the opening presentation. Um, I just want to share a little bit of that with you. In the history of Hmong Christianity in Laos, Boya Tao is remembered as the first Hmong convert to Christian faith. This took place in 1950, not that long ago, in Sang Kwan province, through the work of Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, also CMA, also called the Alliance, uh, missionaries Ted and Ruth Adrianoff. The Adrianoffs arrived in Sang Kwan province with their assistant, Nai Kang, who was a member of the Kamu ethnic minority. They rented a house across the street from the Hmong shaman leader, Bo Ya Tao. The house was widely professed to be haunted by the shaman's spirits. The shaman had heard about the missionaries and waited to see if their faith would be able, sorry, waited to see if their God would be able to deal with the spirits in that house. Shortly after the missionaries arrived, 
Boya encountered a dilemma. His cousin's wife became very ill, and all his efforts as a shaman healer could not heal her. Since he could not heal her, he suggested that his cousin invite Nai Kang, who was the assistant to the missionaries, and the missionaries to tell them more about their god. While the missionaries presented the gospel, Bo Ya Tao, the village shaman, and his family accepted Jesus, and they came to faith and to conversion. It has been said that Bo Ya Tao's status as a shaman influenced other people's conversion. And following this conversion, Nai King and Boya Tao traveled to many Hmong villages throughout the province to spread the word about God. Consequently, families and even whole villages converted to Christianity and began establishing churches, which was characterized as a people movement. I took this out of a work called Hmong America, Reconstructing Community and Diaspora by Chia Yuyi Vang. What's really amazing about this text I just read, or this excerpt, is that it almost sounds like something straight out of the book of Acts, where people are just uh, coming to faith, telling about the risen Lord, and whole crowds by the thousands are just placing their faith in Jesus. In some ways, the story of the first Hmong Christian convert parallels the Abrahamic faith story, where uh, Jews are the recipients of the Abrahamic faith tradition. In a similar way, for Hmong Christians of the CMA, they are the recipients of Boya Tao's faith and conversion. Of course, it's not an exact equivalence. There aren't any inspired scriptures that came out of Boya Tao's conversion. But God did use Boya Tao's faith story to ignite mass conversions of whole villages and whole clans to faith in Christ amongst the Hmong in Laos. To this day, the Christian Missionary Alliance is the biggest Hmong American Christian denomination out of all other Hmong denominations in the world. And thousands of them are right here in the Twin Cities. I love that. You know, what a heritage. Um, and when we look at the heritage that the Jewish believers had uh, in Abraham as the people of God, um, somehow they ended up as the weak in Paul's letters here. Right? So there's this correlation between rich faith tradition and somehow going down this path of becoming the weak. So here's another parallel then. Sometimes growing up in a, a, a tradition like the Hmong CMA or any faith heritage that's really, really rich for that matter, uh, like the week in Rome, you can take on a, a, a sense of pride in your religious heritage. It's easy to slip into this prideful identity within amongst Christian circles then. I had some Hmong friends who were uh, Christians, but they grew up outside of the Christian Missionary Alliance. They grew up in Milwaukee, and they grew up around other Hmong Christians too. And this is sad, but they, they often shared with me how they felt like the Hmong CMA Christians would, would often exclude them. Uh, again, because the Hmong CMA had such a rich heritage. And if you weren't part of that heritage, then you were a little bit of an outsider. Now, obviously, I'm not picking on just the Hmong Alliance, right? Because any, any Christian tradition can do this, right? We can all 
other um, the the other traditions. Uh, none of us are exempt from that. But like the Jewish Christians or the weak in Rome, um, having this tradition, like I said, can form a sense of of uh, pride in our religious identities. And if we let this go unexamined, we end up judging the strong or those who are outside our religious heritage. And just like in Romans that we're reading, right? But Paul offers, to that, Paul offers a really uh, compelling case from the book of Genesis that guards against this religious um, pride, whether for the weak in Rome or for those of us today. So Paul goes um, using Genesis and, 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 the, and the, the events in Genesis, chapter by chapter. Um, Paul's line of thought flows in this way. Right? He says first there was a, a, first there was God's promise to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations in Genesis 12. Right? The Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country. I will make you to a great nation. I will bless you." That's God's promise. Right. The next part of Paul's thought is, um, then it was Abraham's faith that in response to this promise in Genesis 15. So he's just progressing down Genesis. In Genesis 15, this is where Paul uh, quotes from the line that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. And then finally, last, was works, or circumcision. Right? So in Genesis 17, that's when we see uh, circumcision for the first time. That God says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. So promise first, faith second, and then works is, is last. So God promises um, in Genesis 12, Abraham responds in faith, and then finally uh, a covenant of of works or circumcision at the end there. So Paul's asking us, do you see how this progression works? Right? What a reminder to, to us um, who, who do come from a, a rich faith heritage, that the fathers and mothers of our faith uh, responded in faith, and that that same faith also applies to us today, that it's not by works, that it's not by anything other than, than faith. And it's Abraham's faith not works that Paul recovers for Jewish Christians. In a similar way, Boyatow's faith sparked these mass conversions of Hmong Americans, uh, Hmong Lao, and uh, who now comprise uh, the majority of Hmong Christians in the Alliance. So in all of this, Paul says there's no room for boasting. Whether uh, weak or strong, Jew or Gentile, uh, whether uh, you're Hmong CMA or Hmong United Methodist or any other you know, people group or denomination, right? Um, we're all uh, made right with God through, that, through the same faith. Not works of the law or anything else. Um, our faith heritages, uh, even though our faith heritages may have malformed us, may have uh, led us uh, wrongly to, to assume that there are certain things that we must do or must behave in certain ways. Um, but all of us come into the one family of God through faith in Christ. So some of you are um, the recipients of 
the Abrahams in your tradition, right? Some of you have been uh, in Christian families for generations, right? And someone in your ancestry was the first person to live by faith in Jesus that has now made a way for God's righteousness and God's justice to begin marking your family tree, right? Give thanks to God for your story, if that's you. And now you get to share that faith with those around you. Others of you are called to be the Abrahams of your family, right? Others of you are called to, for the first time in your family history, to place faith in Jesus, uh, where you're the first one, right? And, and there, it, this chart has not been uh, uh, mapped out yet, right? And now through your lived faith, your future family tree will begin to reflect God's righteousness and God's justice flowing out from your lineage, right? For all the Abrahams in the room, and I, I would identify as one of them, um, I came to faith, uh, you know, the first person in my family to come to faith in Jesus. Um, there's a lot that hangs on the line, if that's you. If, at least it feels like there's a lot, right? You're lacking a support structure. You go to family gatherings, and you're like the only one, right? Um, but here's the thing. Uh, it, God wants to transform and renew uh, this feels huge. God wants to transform and renew humanity through families like Abraham's and Boyatau's and through your families. Uh, what an amazing opportunity uh, that God gives us to literally shape the course of God's redemptive history, to have a role to play in that through our lived faith. So hold strong and lean even more into this faith that God's Righteousness and God's justice would shape your core and the core of your families for generations to come. But all of us in this room can only be here because of Abraham's faith. Uh, way back in Genesis 15:6, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that we are all part of a much larger story of a people redeemed by God's mercy and by God's love. And this is why our God is a God um, worthy of our worship and of our praise. Amen? Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, um, as we sit here in a room full of a multi-generational uh, community, God, where we have little little ones running around, uh, we have bigger siblings, we have um, parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents, all in the same room, God. We are reminded uh, that, God, you are God who calls uh, faithful generations to you. Lord, none of us can do this uh, alone, God, and um, we, we recognize that um, it's through your faithfulness, God, of drawing near to, to people uh, in, a, in this broken world, drawing near to Abraham, that you would bring out your purposes through uh, the, the seed of Abraham, God, and that, that is, has uh, been a, a, literally a, a transforming gift to the world uh, today, God, that we are just recipients of that. So Lord, we give you uh, we give you the praise, God, that you are a God who uh, delivers and redeems 
um, out of your mercy and out of your love, um, and that the invitation to then um, follow your instructions follows that, God. And I pray that for all of us, that we would recognize you not, not as a God who just um, exercises um, arbitrary you know, rules and legalities, but that, God, you are a God who, who, because you love us, you provide instructions and you provide teaching for us. So, Lord, thank you that you accept us um, by our faith in your Son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.